0: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
1: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is
2: Australia?
0: Please explain. Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut.
2: Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... it.
3: is changing all around the world.
2: I accept
0: your nomination.
3: The authority is total, and I rejected that approach.
2: It's all about
3: acknowledging how far we've come. Well, he's all tip and no iceberg.
0: Like a really
2: scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now. Not
0: ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste <laughs> of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to the last Democracy Sausage for the Year and to our keenly awaited annual Democracy Sausage Awards episode. This was among our most popular and least rigorous episodes last year. Listeners loved the fact that Matthias Cormann's climate conversion, upon seeking the OECD job, secured him the 2020 award for the most flagrant and self-interested backflip. And he got the job also. Many of you were less thrilled, though, at Scott Morrison winning most effective political leader of the year, notwithstanding that we justified that quite extensively at the time and concluded that on balance, after year one of the pandemic, Australia was in a comparatively good place. Let's see how he goes this year. Spoiler alert, I'm not liking his chances. With me as usual is the brilliantly insightful and always scholarly political scientist, Dr Maria Good day, Maria.
2: Hello, everyone. Hello, Mark.
0: And we have a brace of historians, the ANU's Professor Frank Bongiorno and the University of Canberra's Associate Professor Chris Wallace, who is also a visiting fellow at ANU. Welcome to you both.
1: Greetings. Thanks, Mark.
0: And of course, uh, Maria and Frank were with us last year for this ceremony, ceremony if I can call it that, and we've strengthened the batting order with Chris's addition. So let's get straight to it. And to that category I already mentioned, most flagrant and self-interested backflip. with And this is Frank's uh, brilliant suggestion, with special bonus points for achieving it in a confined, confined space. Nominees are Scott Morrison for It's Not a Race on vaccines, electric vehicles, I never attack them. French submarines for They Were Going to Be Obsolete the Moment They Hit the Water. And of course, special mention is warranted for that extraordinary press conference that began with the Prime Minister making soothing words about really getting and really understanding women's oppression. Frank, would you like to speak to that first?
3: Oh, well, yes, I mean, the media conference earlier in the year in which uh, the Prime Minister set out uh, to express his understanding and the fact that he really got the fact that 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 you know women felt oppressed and and uh, that uh, the, the, the poor treatment of women in the workplace and particularly the workplace of Parliament House was problematic and it was all going really well and he, he I think he even almost teared up at, at one point and then all of a sudden everything changed he he uh, was asked a question by a particular journalist and you know uh, immediately started attacking and uh, told the journalist that his own media organization you know didn't have a clean record and this was interpreted at the time as a, a, a kind of a shot at Sam Maiden although as it turned out one that was based uh, entirely on erroneous uh, information so uh, I, I think this is the this is the backflipping in a confined space. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, it wasn't just a, it wasn't over years or months or weeks. <laughs> it was in the space of a few minutes. Uh, so I think it's, it's it's really deserving of a of a that's right, that's significant right. honour. I think, yeah, I, I think that was a, a spectacular backflip. But of course, we've certainly had more expensive ones, as you pointed out, Mark. I mean, the the submarine uh, fiasco is is quite e- extraordinary as a backflip, and and is going to cost us many billions of dollars.
2: I think the latest is 70 billion, Frank, this morning.
0: Yes,
3: yeah, yeah it's, it's extraordinary. And I, I, I think, Mark, in a lot of ways, this one reminds me a bit of the singles charts in the middle of 1964 because, you know, you looked at them and the Beatles had occupied sort of, I don't know, six, seven spaces of the top 10. And it's a bit like that with Scott Morrison and backflip, backflips in 2021.
0: <laughs> well, it takes a historian to, uh, to you know, get 1964 out of 2021, but I think you've done it very well. Chris, what's your view about these?
1: Well, I, th- I think there's a backflip that you've left off the list, Mark, that we can't go past without mentioning, and that is former Morrison Government Cabinet Minister Christian Porter going from being a fighter to a slinker off into the middle distance. That's a pretty big backflip. It was indeed.
0: That's true. I mean the trouble with a lot of these categories of course is that uh, people can win them in, at multiple stages and there you know there could be he he could be a, a nomination for a uh, another category just a few down the list from here which is biggest dill or knob <laughs> award. Uh, oh,
2: I forgot about and we'll that. come to
0: that. Uh, so yeah, that was that was good last year. So that's a, that's a, he's a possible uh, starter there. I mean, all is not lost for Christian Porter if he doesn't win. I mean, you've just nominated him here as in, in, at Chris, and uh, that's the way this works. You can nominate anyone for anything. And
1: um, well, I think fair's fair, and that was a remarkable turnabout. The bloke that you know, it was duking him up left, right, and centre until the minute he kind of quit his defamation action, and then quitting parliament now, not standing again. I mean, that is a really dramatic, that is, you know, that is a sum backflip. Uh,
0: look, it is. Is,
1: is, is it, it a bucks or a dummy spit?
0: Yeah, and it's a collapse. I, I've actually got him listed uh, in, in that category I was talking about and I have it in brackets in front of me, most podiatrally focused marksman, i.e. shooting himself in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And, and and I'm particularly uh, particularly speaking there about his nomination of the blind trust. So you know he launched that uh, that um, defamation action against the ABC. Uh, he then couldn't fund it. It then turned out he was funding it using a bunch of donors who, according to him, remained entirely unknown to him in every respect, who were using. Somewhat creatively, the, uh, the the creation of a blind trust to fund this, what was potentially a million dollar plus defamation action, and then pulled out of it. So, yeah, I mean, we can we can sort of come back to that. I look, I mean, for me, uh, going back to the top uh, to this flagrant uh, and self interested backflip. I mean, electric vehicles. I I just think it it it's such a good one because of how black and white it was. You know, he. He campaigned so strongly and so extraordinary. I mean, you know, there was just, th- you know, the theatrical dismissal of electric vehicles back in 2019, going on about them uh, destroying, you know, removing the Australian weekend. Uh, he talked about, you know, extension cords dangling out of fourth floor apartments to, to charge people's vehicles. They, they couldn't tow the skin off a custard or whatever, you know, whatever it was. They wouldn't tow a trailer and, and so forth. Now he's suddenly for them and, not only that, but it says that he never, never, never ran them down. He was never against them. Never was against yeah.
2: them. He never said that. Yeah, that That's one right. was really
3: brazen, wasn't it? I mean, that, that I think is a good, a good one to focus on. Not least because I think it, it happened about the same time as Sean Kelly's The Game appeared, and Kelly has this blinder of a quotation in it where he says that, you know, Morrison um, always believes what he's saying to be yeah, true the master at of the, the time. You know, so
1: the master of the moment. And that, that was a classic case of this. That's a, that's really interesting because historically I'd contrast that with Simon Crean about whom the same is said. And Simon Crean, I think, did genuinely believe. I think I would actually distinguish Scott Morrison from him in that I don't think Scott Morrison actually does believe the serial, in, in inverted commas, truths he utters from time to time. I think he doesn't care whether it's true or not. And I'm really curious about the role yeah. of, polling in this, because while we all know, for example, you know, this excellent electric vehicle backflip you're drawing attention to, Mark, we know, and all the press gallery journalists know, and people who fully focus on federal politics all the time, which is, you know, us and all of our friends and a few more people, we know it's a direct backflip. But perhaps the Liberal Party polling shows that most people don't follow politics that closely. Most people can't remember what he previously said most people don't care, most people are too busy trying to pay their mortgage and going surfing, maybe they believe him and maybe it works for Morrison with most voters. So maybe maybe we spend a lot of time, you know, splitting hairs over things that excite us but, but perhaps Scott Morrison thinks politically and perhaps the polling justifies his belief that it actually doesn't matter that much if you do such a direct backflip, for example, on EVs, providing you end up on the right spot at the right moment in terms of the electoral cycle.
2: So I think that theory might work really well for the backflip, which I'm not sure you mentioned, Frank, on 2050. Uh, the 2050 target for uh, for climate change, right? Mm. I think I think I think what you're saying that Chris really applies, but I guess I, I I wonder if it applies in the case of EVs, which might make it such an excellent backflip, is because it was a really cut through line, or so they told us that it was a really cut through line. You know, that was one of the things that won in the the 2019 election because. You, He connected with a bunch of voters that normally are less interested in politics because they've got better things to do like towing their utes to beautiful locations so they can go fishing or camping or or whatever. Shooting. Well, exactly, shooting as (laughs) well. The great Australian pastimes Um, of hunting, shooting and fishing. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know?
1: (laughs) stickers
3: <laughs> on those bands don't, don't lie. Uh, yeah. uh, I take Chris's point, though. I mean, I've always felt that Morrison's basic political technique is not so much to deceive but, but to rely on the fact that people are either not listening or only half listening. And and so I, I sort of agree with the idea that backflips or individual backflips might not really make much difference to, to to most voters. His problem now, though, of course, is that a particular image has clung to him of dishonesty or of, of being untruthful, and and you know that's going to be harder to shake off. So it's sort of the the, the, the accumulation, I guess, of these sorts of um, backflips and denials and all the rest of it that is is now. I think starting to 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 bite, and yes, the question will be how, how badly it's biting.
0: Yeah, look, I think that's right. I think that, uh, and and so, in a sense, really, both of these perspectives are right. It's a question of at what point does it uh, really start to, you know, make it make a, make a sort of a serious impression on uh, the public understanding of him. You know, do people trust him? The as, as Maria says, that you know, we ending the weekend line was was so so clear cut, so you know, it was so, I mean, it was, it was risible even at the time uh, to anyone who thought much about it, but it did connect with a number of people. And, um, you know, that was it was perfectly in tune with the whole kind of uh, don't risk it approach that the coalition took to, that Morrison sort of took as a one-man show to the 2019 election. Uh, and, and now he has to pivot away from it. He pivots away to the 180 degree position and then tries to say well it never happened but the trouble is it happened on camera and it happened multiple times and all lots of other front benches Michaelia Cash and others you know doubled down on it so it was uh it was for me uh it was just the sort of brazen egregious nature of it that 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 gets it there in in my vote but you know that's where I am so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with electric vehicles uh any any other um Oh, give me, give me your, uh, give me your votes, and we'll see who wins it.
1: Yes, let's go with EV. That is a good one.
2: I think, I think if the category is brazen, then it's got to be that. You know, if the category is dollars,
1: EV, EV.
0: Yeah, well, it is most flagrant. <laughs> there you go. There you go.
2: Backup, so it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't have to be yeah. cost effective, so long as it, you know, gets one, right. <laughs> well,
0: but, but, but I do like the point that that Chris makes about you know the sort of. The details of these things, because it, it's something that worries me as well. I mean, voters don't, as I, I the way I've been putting it is, you know, voters don't carry around lists in their mind of all the things that, all the umbrages they've had at various times with, with politicians. It, it, you know, it recedes into the background. They're living their lives. They're doing many things. They've got many, many other priorities. Those of us who watch politics more closely might be more inclined to do that, but we can sometimes overestimate the impact of, you know, individual, individual things. That brings us to our next, uh, this is quite a change of pace, uh, next category. And we we had this last year and for, for obvious reasons, but there's still a good reason for keeping this category this year, at least for this year. And who knows? We may have to revive it after that. But the category was Maddest Moment of the Trump Presidency. And uh, you might say, but hang on, Trump's not president. Well, he was president up until the handover in uh, January of this year. So after we were uh, doing this episode last year, and of course we all saw January six insurrection, which really I, I just would argue nothing else comes close. Anyone got an advance on uh, on the January six insurrection at the Capitol?
3: The only advance I could think of, uh, Chris, would be that uh, you know the capacity of the uh Republicans to defend it as, as patriotic activity. So, you know, you could probably make the case that that was even crazier than the original insurrection. But but I think it's hard to beat the 6th of January 2021. Yes,
1: that's, uh, that was the super grim low point, And uh, I fear that there are even deeper low points ahead on that front. But before we move off Trump, let it not be forgotten. Rudolph Giuliani's dripping hair dye during that sweaty press conference (laughs) deserves a special commendation.
0: Well, it did get a, it did get a mention last time because that had just occurred, I think, when we when we recorded this episode last time, and I think we described it as a, I thought that was a, him a, fighting a, a, a position because that fighting?
2: was I thought I thought we talked about that? him fighting yeah, that got into <laughs> yeah, you were kind, you were uh, kind was, enough to remind us yes, of that Maria yes. as I said I, yeah yeah I thought yeah, the dripping yeah. hair thing happened later <laughs> in the year.
0: No, because I remember a line where we said that he, what he was saying was so ridiculous, even his hair dye
1: made a run for it. <laughs> no. That's pretty good. Uh, right, right, right.
2: No. But I think I think you know if we if we if we drill the net a bit more widely, you know, like because there's there's many there's many like mad 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 moments in international politics. Like I very much enjoyed the Dominic Cummings before the committee in the UK. You know that was. That was that was a bizarre sort of turn turning of the screw I suppose.
1: I think that could go you into know? the self-serving backflip category if we just did. Oh, well,
2: well that's 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 very true, you know, if we well, had an indeed. international Yes. yes.
0: Now just, just for those who aren't as familiar, Dominic Cummings having been the former uh, top advisor to to Boris Johnson and of course one of the key architects of the uh, Leave campaign in the Brexit referendum in 2016 and uh, he was you know an idiosyncratic uh, um, you know very strange figure who had this fengali like relationship with with Johnson for a while and then turned on him most most aggressively and that 's what you're referring to him That's right 's right that 's right appearing and saying that this man Boris Johnson is unfit to lead, and so are most of the other people in the senior levels of the Tory party which. I think, is uh, playing out. He's turned out to be right on something.
2: Well, that's right, you know, and I mean, you know, the, the Prime Minister might be undone by a Christmas party that may or may not have happened,
0: which, happened. yeah,
2: oh, we know it happened. We know it happened. <laughs> <laughs> even even the right-wing tabloids in the UK are saying it happened, so it, it must have happened. I,
0: I love the fact that, uh, did, I don't know if you saw Marina Hyde's brilliant uh, column in The Guardian, uh, but she was making the point that the the Met, you know, the, uh, the London police, Having a lot of trouble establishing whether it did happen or not, despite the fact that they have officers stationed within number ten at you know sort of <laughs> ten meter intervals, and she said it must have been something to do with sight lines they couldn't see that there was this raging party going on at the same time as the rest of the country was in you know a sort of grim lockdown
1: exactly uh, in the, in the lead up to Christmas, which the British absolutely love there was also that very, oh, there was also that very telling picture of the uh, the black garbage bag wrapped over the internal security camera that was uh, poised just above Boris, whereas Boris Johnson was sitting at a a different event. So clearly the whole question of security at 10 Downing Street is um, hmm, somewhat iffy. Yes. Yeah. I'd like to make a case for a sequel to Love Actually
3: um, <laughs> in which, which, in, in, in which this, this Christmas party features as a kind of climactic moment, um, oh, yeah. you know, with, with you know, obviously Boris as Prime Minister instead of Hugh Grant. I think it would be a fantastic
1: film. Um, oh. Well, I, um, think, and, I, I, think, I
0: think it could be called um, Mad yeah. Actually.
1: That's very good, but guys, we need it not to be a film. It needs to be a streaming service series at length to keep up with contemporary mores and actually reach the right audience. Has anyone read the Mick Herron, Slow House, Jackson Lamb books?
0: No, No. I have read one or two Mick Herrons, but not that.
1: Well, you need to read the Slow House books. This Mick Herron has a character called Peter Judd who is Boris Johnson. And you cannot believe that this novelist has put this character in about six novels in a row and not got sued. It is so uncannily, Boris Johnson. Highly really? recommended for your Christmas stockings, the Mick Heron, Slow House, Jackson Lamb, Spy Books.
0: Well that's a very good recommendation and we might come to a few other recommendations for Christmas reading uh, toward the end if we have time uh which we're bearing in time in mind let's move on to our next category so we've given the maddest moment to uh January 6th insurrection and, and everything that sort of uh, happened in the in the hours before it that Trump did and and let's let's rope in many things that have happened since including the relentless pursuit of Liz Cheney and anyone else who showed anything like any sort of conscience about what happened to the Republican party which has now become just a uh, you know an incredibly bad taste joke this award worst calls of the pandemic now there's a few of these uh, and i certainly don't have an exhaustive list here but uh, among them that have been suggested is the Victorian government's closing down of playgrounds Mark McGowan's ongoing Hermit Kingdom. He's announced uh, that they do have plans to open up WA, uh, but I think it's not until into the new year, February or sometime. And, Frank, you've uh, nominated Adam Crichton, the uh, the Australian's uh, US correspondent, formerly economics correspondent. His persistence in the view that COVID is on par with the common cold and that Sweden got it right. And there's a few others as well. Jared uh, Rennick, uh, the coalition the senator, who's a... Uh, you know, doesn't it? Doesn't uh, it? Doesn't like vaccination? And of course, George Christensen, who wouldn't mind seeing, you know, people rioting outside, or at least uh, demonstrating outside of Australian embassies overseas. Of course, that means in the US, there could be armed demonstrators outside uh, Australian embassies in the US. Really great, George! Terrific from a, a government uh, MP to be making such a case.
2: Now, don't forget when the Victorian government effectively created internal displaced people by refusing the right of entry of their own citizens to return to their own homes.
0: Yes, yeah. that's right. And that's that's been sort of run on a national level as well, of course, international level really, uh, in the sense that, you know, people have Australian citizens and, and, and uh, permanent residents have been unable to come back for a long time and that's changed now but uh, that you know, nearly two years they've been held at bay. Any thoughts on any of those?
1: I think that's a really, really big one. But you know, again, let's not forget New, former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian standing up day in, day out at her pandemic press conferences, claiming that her government was following the health advice. When we know now it was not following the health advice, she she has suffered no public reputational damage virtually at all. For this. Many, many people died more than was, you know, inevitable in this situation because she wasn't following the health advice. I think this is an extraordinary state of affairs. And you know, as far as worst calls of the pandemic goes, uh, for people who, who lost family members, and I'm one, as a result of Gladys Berejiklian not following the health advice, that was an absolute shocker.
0: So just to be clear on that, uh, you're talking about revelations that have come out from uh, Dr Kerry Chant primarily, are you here, where, where it turns out that she was advising wider lockdown in Sydney, for example, when they had those sort of more suburb-specific lockdowns uh, early in the uh, outbreak of Delta?
1: Correct. We, we know now in retrospect that from very, very early on, Kerry Chant recommended Melbourne-style Blanket lockdowns of a a much more absolute nature instead of the kind of quasi patchy, quasi patchy lockdown that um, Gladys Berejiklian ended up running. And, you know, I, I feel very ambivalent about Kerry Chant's role in this too. It's her job to give the correct advice, it's the government's call to take it or not and to be accountable for that. But to stand there day by day as she knew she had given advice that Gladys Berejiklian wasn't taking, you know, that was. That was, at the very least, I think, a misuse of a public official. I don't think that was fair of the government to do that to Kerry Chant. But, you know, most of all, Gladys Berejiklian lying day in, day out, saying she's taking the health advice but not, was absolutely extraordinary.
0: Mm. Well, it's a it's a pretty persuasive case you make and it's a pretty important issue, Uh somewhat changes the tone of, of, of this. But this is a pretty serious category too, worst cause of the pandemic. What you're talking about there are you know, policy decisions that had material impact on people and, were, and was potentially very dangerous. And as you say, um, may have resulted in, in um, COVID cases, some of which ended in death. Uh, that's, uh, that's a great concern.
3: It is. And, and, you know, I don't think anyone would seriously argue that a call from the New South Wales Premier to begin locking down came mm. early enough. I mean, that was the other aspect of it, that it it all came too late. Um, and indeed, the, 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 the regulations that were in place were clearly too loose, given that they're allowing, you know, uh, uh, unmasked um, chauffeur drivers at the airport and all the rest of it. I mean,
2: yeah, I, I
3: think Chris makes a A strong case,
1: actually.
0: I'm happy to go with that.
2: Yes, I think so too, yeah.
0: Let's do one more before we go to the break. Now, this is, you know, you mentioned reputational damage, Chris, in relation to uh, former Premier Gladys Berejiklian. She gets a mention in this award, at least in the ones I've listed out, but you may have others you want to add to this. This is the biggest Dill Award or sometimes called NOB. So many candidates, Craig Kelly, Andrew Lamming, Clive Palmer, and there is the question of should Gladys Berejiklian be in there for you know the whole debacle uh, which ended her premiership, that being the five-year relationship she had with Darren Maguire. Of course, we've seen that playing out with Morrison trying to convince her to run in Warringah against uh, Zali Stegall, and uh, uh, that's that's been an unhappy affair for for all concerned as well. But really, you know, people talking about waiting for the outcome of the ICAC inquiry. I think in some ways are kind of missing the point. What what she's already admitted to and what's already come out in public evidence in the ICAC hearings, uh, irrespective of what the sort of material impact of it was, uh, is that uh, she had a relationship with someone uh, that uh, was... That, that should have been disclosed and that had it been disclosed, and numerous officials have made this point, had it been disclosed, would have changed the way they dealt with the Premier and dealt with certain issues uh, around uh, the allocation of grants. And that's enough, in my view, to have been a, um, a, a resigning offence. She obviously took that view as well herself because she took herself out of the game. As I say, there are plenty of other people in there. and we I did mention before the podiatrally focused marksman. Porter for his blind trust. Uh, no one I've seen who's had such a high opinion of himself has had such a low aim. And uh, so you know, he, he's, um, he's right up there for mine. Um, yeah.
1: It's encouraging, isn't it? Well, can I throw in one more? I, I don't think we can go, we can't overlook without a mention Matt Canavan, our very own cosplay coal miner. <laughs> That's true. Now, bearing in mind that this guy is a former public servant, he's a former economist for the Productivity Commission in Canberra. He would not have run across a piece of coal in his life. It's so funny to see his social media where he's in his high viz, he's carefully stood in front of the mirror and rubbed a bit of coal all over his face, whacked on the hard hat and expects us all to go, yeah, coal miner, quick
2: you know got to admire his level of commitment, though. You know, I mean, you know, he's, he's sort of in a, in a 24-7 kind of cosplay. You know, it's not so
1: just a weekend or festival kind Could of Could he event, not get you know. a more community-friendly yes. uniform? What about, you know, Matt Canavan cosplaying a nurse helping COVID patients or something less... Now this is about
0: of, the whole culture war inside the... I know that you know this already, of course, but, I mean, yeah. that's what this is about, isn't it? It's about uh, the whole... Uh, climate change, cultural war, you know, and it's about what who the Nats actually now represent, which has very little to do with farmers and a whole lot to do with miners, many of which are majority owned overseas.
1: A Liberal Party, Silverback, so told me the other day, the trouble with the National Party used to be that it was all farmers. Now the problem is there are no farmers. <laughs> That's very
2: economic that's, a, economically that's a damning
1: that's a damning state of affairs my look my money's on andrew Lamming.
2: i i i just i you know bigger still like you know here's a dude who who just simply could not understand um the problem he had caused went in to apologize into the chamber, then realized he needed to do some training and and even after that you know um he still doesn't seem to kind of get it and he's sort of um, I guess found the natural conclusion to all of this sort of stuff, which is which is to to retire. So yes, I mean yeah, th- th- I I vote for Andrew Labing. That's my that's my. That's
3: I agree. He's very special, Maria. Although I have to say that in terms of sort of cap- capturing in a moment where Australian politics is at the moment, I mean uh, Gladys Berejiklian's defence of herself against the charge of nepotism. Uh, on the grounds that it was only pork barrelling so it was okay, I thought, is is certainly something that, that
1: oh yeah, yeah all
3: it. I feel like all that's
1: from a different to
3: category, right. though. Maybe she isn't a dill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it doesn't belong here. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, she, she might come up in, and she, she might get a, a mention in uh, the next category, which yeah. is a visible explanation for a government or political failure. But before we do that, let's go to a break. Uh, I, I don't think we've really nailed down <laughs> who's got the
1: biggest <laughs> NOB award.
0: Uh, so you're saying Andrew Lamming Maria. Uh, what are you saying? Yeah, what are you saying, Chris?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm still, the jury's out for me. I really want to go for Cosplay Canavan, but he's not on the official list, you know. Cosplay
0: Canavan. Well, look, can I Can I give you a, a little tip, right? He's going to come up in an odd place <laughs> in a subsequent category, so there might be a chance. Okay, well, to...
1: on, a, on a go-along-to-get-along basis, I'm famous for that, I'll go Lamming. Okay. I'll go
2: Lamming too.
0: Okay, Lamming to gets that. it. Yeah. Mr. Lamming or Dr. Lamming or whatever he is, he gets What's it. The,
2: mm-hmm. a fitting tribute to a, a stellar career.
0: career. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment with most risible okay. explanation for government or political failure.
1: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
0: Welcome back. Now, the category is most risible explanation for a government or political failure. Frank, would you like to talk to this? I think you've uh, me- made the point that uh, Morrison deserves a nomination for his efforts to blame ATAGI, uh, and you've also talked about uh, ICAC and uh, uh, his position there, so perhaps I'll get you to talk to this.
3: Yes, yeah, so ATAGI sort of formed a, a, a useful... Scapegoat for the government's muddled messaging and late-night media conferences to change the advice on vaccination, all the rest of it, thereby really misrepresenting the role that Atagi actually plays uh, in in these sorts of matters. And so, you know, by that stage, the the vaccine rollout was a disaster, and and Atagi was a very useful um, sort of uh, place to focus. Uh, he blames Labor for the fact that three years on, we don't have a, a, a you know, a federal ICAC or a, a, an Integrity Commission. Uh, it's all Labor's fault because they won't basically just support his legislation, which I think most people recognise would be an excellent um, uh, method for um, actually protecting corruption rather than uncovering it, the way it's set up um, in the draft proposals. Um, I mean, the other ones that occur to me, um, I think Simon Birmingham blaming the media for the blow up with Emmanuel Macron in France, I thought was brilliant. I really (laughs) enjoyed that one. It was all the media's fault because they asked questions and reported what Macron had said. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it?
0: And then and and isn't isn't that a great isn't that a great case of, of like you know how a, a, a prime minister we, we see this in in all government state and federal how a prime minister sets the tone for others so Birmingham who has a, a, a reputation for being measured and reasonable and and uh, very sensible in in many things uh, comes up with that. Quite, and that's why I think this is worthy of a mention here. That risible explanation that uh, you know the the media uh, were were to blame for what actually happened with France and with Emmanuel Macron being so angry, and of course Morrison had that was fresh from his boss Morrison actually making that accusation that journalists (laughs) had been pursuing (laughs) selfies with Macron at uh, at the G twenty. So you know it's a good example of how culture is set from the top as well, isn't it?
3: And it was exploiting public hostility to the media and to journalists. I mean, you know, that's what Birmingham was up to. In fact, it's what Morrison was up to as well. And that's what yeah. Trump
0: did so well. Yeah,
3: absolutely. You so, turn
0: your critics. Always make your critics into partisans. They're always. They always have a a political motive. They can't just be making an honest, objective assessment of of your failings.
2: I think the another one that 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 fits on that list is um, Porter's explanation for his blind trust. You know that. That it's perfectly fine for him to accept uh, money, you know, millions of, like, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars from a blind trust because he didn't know who they were. And and, and the the committee that uh, examined this ultimately determined that it was technically within the rules, but that the rules should be changed.
0: Mm. It's a good point. It's a good yeah. point. I'm, I'm, I'm quite persuaded by that actually and seeing as we didn't get Porter up in the in the other one I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of tempted to, to get to him here but but I do think you know <laughs> it's not a race and blaming Otago and 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 all of the shifting there I mean these are these are big failures yeah. and you know we've oh, yeah, tossed off explanations uh, that bear so little relationship to any fact that's uh, that's probably where I'm going to land on this one
3: Yep, I'm going Morrison too And it's also the wider damage that that kind of attack does. I mean, you know, we we have public health authorities. They have a difficult job. They've had, you know, a sort of moving target during this pandemic. It's not easy to make the right calls. And what Morrison did, it was a populist attack on uh, one of them for political gain in order to get himself out of the absolute shambles into which the government's vaccination program had descended. Uh, it, It did much wider damage, I think.
2: It. That's right, because it undermined, uh, you know, public competent, confidence in, in these organizations, you know, and he, he effectively appeared to be lobbying them as well, which, which is, I think, kind of a sort of disturbing trend, you know, they're they're there to give him advice and he's there to make a decision about that advice and then take responsibility for the result.
0: Yeah, well, that's been a bit of a feature, hasn't it? The way that this government has uh, na- navigated difficulties. Uh, we saw that ridiculous situation where Barnaby Joyce was talking about the government's position on net zero by 2050 before they'd finally landed on on it symbolically, if nothing else. And he was talking like he was outside the government, while at the same time being a member of its cabinet and its deputy <laughs> prime <laughs> minister. Uh, you know, it's just.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, but you know, it's got no power. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, now we we, we we don't want to run out of time, so we'll have to sort of uh, move on quickly. This is most effective political leader now. There's two of these: one is international, and one is national. So the most effective political leader, international, Angela Merkel uh, for going out on her own terms. That does that uh, rate with everyone? Yeah, I yeah,
2: think so. Absolutely, hundred
3: percent. So. Doesn't happen often, no. does it?
2: No, yeah. and she was basically still you know still doing the job whilst the the German party system was working out. Who who was going to build the coalition as well? So, yeah, she's a class act.
0: Yeah, obviously there are some other nominations that we could have considered. Joe Biden has um, you know steadied the ship to some extent in the US after the the Trump madness, but there's plenty of madness still to go. And as a number of us have made the point earlier, um, it, you know it, it, it could all get very mad again. Jacinda Ardern, of course, we we talked about her last year having not just uh, I think you made this very good point yourself, Maria. Having not just um, won the election, but done so in a in a, a sort of a system designed, really, so no party got a majority. Having done so emphatically, and having done so by uh, really selling a brand of politics that 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 is positive and hopeful and constructive which is so badly needed around the world but I, I think we'll go with uh, with with Merkel's uh, you know considerable contribution to uh, to Germany to European politics to global politics and the fact that she's done so leaving on her own terms and with such great respect so that that makes sense to me most effective political leader national now this is where I mentioned to you Chris that canavan might come up again I say this with a degree of tongue-in-cheek but for someone so junior not even a member of the of the, of the cabinet <laughs> or the ministry you know he's well he was he, remember. he was yeah but he's been driving oh. policy to a large extent i mean if you think about where the government ended up with um its net zero by 2050 going into the glasgow summit with no architecture to get there no change of policy no legislation no need for any new mechanisms and the sort of ridiculous statement, which could have uh, got it a, a mention in previous categories, the ridiculous statement that, uh, well, we don't need to change anything because we were getting there anyway, which really raised the question, well, what the hell has all this been about for so long if, you, if in fact, you believed in net zero by 2050 anyway? Uh, so, I mean, you know, funnily <laughs> enough, Canavan's been a very influential player in, in the government, as indeed has Barnaby Joyce, and Barnaby Joyce talks to to Canavan and Canavan talks to Morrison and we end up with sort of mediocre policy outcomes we've seen.
1: So if you're characterising Matt Canavan as the the National Party tail wagging the Morrison government dog, <clears throat> yep, totally with you on that, but but what, what are those centripetal <laughs> forces going to deliver for the coalition come March or May next year? That's the incredible question. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about today is the phenomenal outbreak of the Voices movement in liberal and national party seats around Australia, oh my God! Wow, talk about momentum. Well, it, look uh,
0: again. I see, this is the, this just shows that you're thinking, you and I are thinking on very similar lines here. Because um, I do have a category toward the end, and I should have shown you this, but uh, I'm sorry that I didn't. We do have a category toward the end that's uh, most interesting or hopeful development of the year, and the I think the favorite for that is the rise of these female independents. And I was hoping we could talk about that a bit. So. I'm happy to do that either now or in a moment. Now, let,
1: let's stick with your secret cabinet agenda, Mark. <laughs> this is the whole point about proper cabinet processes, you see. If you circulate the agenda first, we see the cohort comments, wow. you know, we're all, we can all have an orderly situation. But if you want to do it kind of Morrison government style, no paper, impossible to FOI. No, keep going. Oh, Honestly, I'm with you? Yeah, wow. Well, well,
0: I, well, I, I have adopted a highly successful what I call the Morrisonian approach to leadership here and uh, as you can say, it's deeply frustrating. We're in
1: awe. We're in awe. <laughs>
3: that's, that's, that's right. Are, you, are yes. you taking a photo of yourself at the moment, Mark? <laughs> or
1: or is your professional picture. photographer that yeah, you have in right. tow taking a the picture a seat of? a jacket all.
0: and a pair of shorts to show that I'm I'm both the leader and the everyman all in one shot.
1: That's how Um, we think of you. You are definitely
2: the everyman. (laughs) Um, So can I nominate Brittany Higgins and and Grace Tame as most effective political leaders? I know they're not technically political leaders, um, but in terms of, uh, I guess, you know, leadership on, on an important issue, they really stepped up to the plate this year, I think, which I don't know if we could really always say that of our our actual
1: elected political leaders.
0: I think it's pretty hard to argue with. I'm happy to go with that.
1: Phenomenal, phenomenal talent, phenomenal national leadership, huge impact.
3: It, it's a great point, and, and I think TAME in particular has extraordinary public leadership qualities, which I suspect we're going to see a lot more of in the decades ahead. So, yeah, look, that's a great suggestion.
0: Yeah, let's go with that. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump through a few. Uh, the next one is woman uh, or man of the year. I'm the, the the name I have written down here is Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. Precisely. I just think for such efficient truth telling. And, and and I should just say here that uh, Bevan Shields, who's just been uh, named as a new editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and of course is currently the uh, the uh, Sydney Money Herald and Age Europe correspondent, been on this podcast a number of times, was the person who put the question to Emmanuel Macron, do you think he lied to you? Uh, to which Macron uh, famously responded, I don't think, I know. Uh, so, um, yes, it was a pretty telling moment and it may well be. A, it was. It felt like at one stage, you know, at one, in one sense you sort of thought, oh, well, this is just one of those beltway things, right, uh, voters aren't going to get too animated about it they're not particularly interested in international affairs and they're even less interested in in french politics or the french being upset or whatever but there was it, it sort of emerged perhaps in a way that uh, sometimes these events can be underplayed sometimes it emerged that it was a sort of a crystallizing moment in terms of the understanding of Scott Morrison it you know it was like it was such an egregious Lie that had been called out directly by someone who didn't have any skin in the game in Australia, uh, and it, it may have been a very significant moment. Now Macron, of course, is emerging as uh, potentially. We mentioned Merkel before, but he's emerging as potentially the, the the dominant figure in Europe. So that's why I've got him on my list. But if
2: he if he wins that next election, yeah, that's
0: true. Yes. To, well, that's right. This this nomination could look absolutely useless by next year, but uh, he's, he's, uh, he's got my vote. Anyone, anyone got anyone else on the... He'll be
3: able to use the nomination, Mark, in his campaign. Well, I he imagine. will. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's now going yeah. to
0: become, and I, I regret that because we don't like to, uh, you know, affect politics in that sense, but it's pretty clear he's going to be using this now front and centre of the French campaign. <laughs> uh,
1: a little, little sidebar here. Bevan Shields did ask the key question, but as often with an individual brilliant performance, it was in a... A brilliant team context. I think you, you can't walk by without mentioning Andrew Proben and Pablo Vinales as well. Andrew Proben from the ABC, Pablo Vinales from SBS. The, the, the whole operation was so good and so in contrast to how the press gallery normally works. So, this was a thought out operation no cameras to scare off Macron and his people, the use of handheld phones to take the footage together those three journalists you know stopped macron and got him to talk that was a fantastic example of journalists consciously going after an important story and this is really important mark and I know you'll understand this journalists working together to ensure accountability right so this is this is such an important moment to just pause and appreciate what happened there and hope that kind of technique and collegiality and strategic thinking about getting accountability out of a government that's really reluctant to be accountable. Let's hope we see a whole lot more of that in 2022.
0: Uh, Very good point, Chris, and spoken uh, as one of the two journalists on this panel, um, people with journalistic training, um, I uh, absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that. And the only reason I'd I'd seen good out Bevan was really just skiting about the fact that we've had him on the podcast a number of times. But uh, yes, you're right. I mean, uh, Probe and... uh, uh, certainly started it off with uh, with his questioning of McQuaid, and it was uh, coordinated after that. So, we, do we have a, a further nomination? Because if not, I am going to move on very quickly because we are getting quite uh, tight for time now.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting kind of question. You know, is there really a standout man or man or woman of the of the year? I guess that hasn't already been covered by other other. It's been second- a
0: bad year, I think.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think feel, I feel like perhaps we should instead just honor our critical care nurses and doctors who have had a second shit year and thank them for all the work they have done.
1: Yeah, here here goes without saying. Just before we leave this category, I don't think we can really, you know, you mentioned Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame very appropriately earlier. I think we need to add a few other people like uh, the person who kicked off the whole extraordinary year we've had on the gender front, Louise Milligan. Uh, November last year with Inside the Canberra Bubble on Four Corners, amazing. The incredible Sam Maiden really bringing the Brittany Higgins story home to us. And let's not forget Joe Dyer. Joe Dyer, the, the woman who stood up and really brought home to Australia just what you can do if you're really focused on getting justice. Now, Joe Dyer's individual representations. Uh, in the public realm, backed by her friends on behalf of of her friend who unfortunately had suicided uh, a few years ago, has taken down one of the biggest players in Australian politics, and a churn and someone who started out at the beginning of this electoral cycle as a cabinet minister now won't be standing for his seat. So this was really achieved by someone who is not only not in a prominent Australian political position, not even in parliament. Uh, there's no one on the opposition benches who can claim as big a scalp as Joe Dyer can uh, in seeing off Christian Porter from Australian politics. So well done, Joe Dyer.
0: Yes, fair play. Now, um, most interesting, this is the, what I'll do is I'll do this last one and then I'm going to quickly get a, a reading recommendation from you. So this is most interesting or hopeful development of the year. I've listed the rise of the female independence as, as mine, but there's also you know obviously nascent international progress on climate change a long time coming but we've seen some movement there at last there is the departure of alan jones which uh, (laughs) is worth mentioning and frank you you've you've mentioned to me uh the the whole advent of telehealth and uh, the take-up of possibilities of online government services as well yeah
3: look I, i think in a whole range of ways our lives are much more digital than they were two years ago and that's Surely, one of them that that you know people like me, Luddites, really uh, reluctant to go on to government websites and register and and use my gov and all the rest of it, are now doing it as a matter of course. Now, of course, some people would say that's a a negative thing, but it, it has had benefits. and And in a country such as ours, where uh, it's pretty far flung, admittedly, we don't have uh, the uh, um, you know the internet that we like, uh, the broadband we'd like, but nonetheless, I mean, it has opened up all sorts of possibilities that really we were talking about much more theoretically a few years ago, and particularly when the whole, you know, issue of NBN and so on was being discussed back in the Rudd and Gillard years. You know, we were told about here are the possibilities for the future. Well, now they're starting to be realised, and I think that's been immensely important and, and probably on the whole positive development.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. For me, it is uh, the... Uh, and I, like, I don't disagree with any of that, of course. My, my vote's going to go with, uh, as far as single developments go, keeping it very sort of purely political, is uh, the rise of these independents. I just think that uh, these credible uh, candidates, most of the women standing up as independents in a whole range of places, they would have been, in many cases... At home, as moderates within the Liberal Party of old, at least uh, theoretically um, but they are uh, they 're committed to things like integrity uh, in politics uh action on climate change um, these sorts of issues uh, and I think that uh, to see them standing up now in in a range of places, it offers i think for the first time in a long time a, a real sense of actual democratic renewal. We hear a lot about. Uh, you know, the decline of democracy, and we hear various things said about it. But this this is a material development of some positivity. And I think, you know, I, I know people personally, I suspect we all do, who have been quite animated by this, who are, who are wearing the t-shirts and offering to work on campaigns for various uh, independents, not because they hate either party particularly, but because they believe that things have just got into a state of, of sort of gridlock and 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 uh, rank op- sort of oppositionism. And uh, I think this is uh, just such a, a positive development. We'll see how it goes in the election, but for me, it's definitely the big thing that's come out of the last 12 months of politics.
2: I think, I think it's really hard to argue against that, Mark. You know, people politically engaging and wanting to get involved, I mean, we haven't really seen an upswing in this kind of activity since the 70s and 80s, so... You know, it's not before time.
1: So for me, it's definitely the fact that at last uh, the LNP is the odd one out on climate policy. Uh, we, We now are in a situation where even the Business Council of Australia is on the same side as the Labor Party and the rest of Australia on wanting decent, sensible climate policy. And, of course, the coming election is going to be the big test about whether the electorate agrees with the now isolated LNP or everybody else. Uh, it's going to be an absolutely gripping election and, my God, it's going to be a huge year for the Democracy Sausage podcast, Mark. <laughs> i are going to pack in some zeds <laughs> over the, the summer break because it's going to be a biggie.
0: Yeah, that's true. Very quickly, if I could ask you to just give us a recommendation or give listeners a recommendation of, of, of what, what to read over over the summer, just perhaps one or two titles.
1: Well, I'd start with uh, three books, Annika Smethurst's biography of Scott Morrison Sean Kelly's Meditation on Scott Morrison. And for those who don't mind poking out a a book that's a few years old, Nikki Savas' Plots and Prayers, uh, the story of Malcolm Turnbull's demise and Scott Morrison's ascension to the Australian Prime Ministership, if you don't go into an election year with a very good handle on the Prime Minister, I think it's it's ill-advised. So prepare, people. Read up on your Prime Minister. It's uh, very important reading
0: that's a good recommendation uh maria
1: so i guess on the political side you know i would endorse what chris said but i would
2: add to that list um sex lies and question time by kate ellis uh, especially for those of you interested in the jenkins review on a sort of more sort of frivolous holiday read i've i've been enjoying the the laundry files series which is basically the adventures of a one-time it consultant that is now an occult field agent so it's sort of A large British bureaucracy that is fighting horrible squid demon monsters. It's fun
0: and funny. Sounds great. Sounds great. And, Frank, uh, what about you? You, you, One of the things you mentioned to me was that, uh, of course, the great Australian historian Stuart McIntyre died quite recently. He'd be on your list?
3: He would, yeah. So Stuart very sadly passed away just a a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. His final book, The Party, The Communist Party of Australia, From Heyday to Reckoning, is a cracker. It's a sequel to a book that he published about 25 years ago called The Reds, looking at the origins and early history of the Communist Party. This one takes the story up to around 1970. McIntyre was, you know, one of the, the great historians, really, of, of post-World War II period, certainly of his generation. Uh, it'll be out in March. Uh, I've enjoyed reading it. I've been lucky enough, obviously, to read it in, in proof. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's an absolute treat.
0: That's absolutely terrific Now I'll just make a couple of quick recommendations Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum Um, Really enjoyed reading that Judith Brett who we had on the podcast uh, Only a few episodes ago Her magnificently perceptive book Doing politics, writing on public life And a a, a lovely book I read recently Called The Liberation of Paris How Eisenhower de Gaulle and von Scholtitz Saved the City of Light By Jean-Edward Smith Really, really enjoyed reading that Um, So I recommend those uh quickly I'm going to thank a few people before we go. Uh I'd like to thank the ANU studio and the media media team led by Jamie Kidston and James Giggaher respectively. Uh the Crawford School of Public Policy, uh the College of Asia and the Pacific and of course the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations with which uh, both Maria and I are involved and also obviously all of our guests through the year. It's been been a terrific year. It's going to be a v- as as uh, Chris says, an even more interesting year next year as we uh, get into that election season uh, uh, coming out of the summer, and uh, that's going to be absolutely fascinating. It may well be the most interesting election since 1969, or perhaps 1983, depending on. On how you measure them. Uh, so that's going to be fascinating. Can I also thank uh, Angus Blackman, who's been the uh, and who remains the executive producer of this podcast and does an absolutely sterling job and does so from a distance, as we all do, disaggregated as we are by the pandemic and the, the needs of that. So thank you, uh, for everyone, for, for your involvement this year. And of course, thanks to Chris Wallace, Frank Bonjourno, and Maria Tafaga for uh, uh, your rib- rigorous application to this August task this year. It's obviously a uh, you know very uh, high status uh, ceremony this one, and I think you've handled it with aplomb. So, thanks very much for for your contributions.
1: Cheers, all. Thanks,
2: thanks so thank much, you. thanks
0: Mark. Thank thanks you, Mark, always. and
2: thank you, Angus.
0: See you all next year. Bye for now.
2: Happy holidays.